Welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfand. And I'm Michael Beirut. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. On each episode, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. This episode is sponsored by the Porto Design Summer School. Now in its fourth year, a two-week intensive editorial design workshop in Porto, Portugal. For more information, visit portosummerschool, all one word, dot idiomatic.pt. Back in 2005, I wrote a piece for Design Observer called Innovation is the New Black. That was almost a dozen years ago, and I was kind of looking skeptically at this mania for innovation as a trendy thing that everyone wanted to talk about. And everyone still wants to talk about it, even they have no idea what it means. But there's this other thing that let's call maintenance. And maintenance is not quite as sexy, not quite as visionary, and people aren't quite as eager to affiliate with maintenance. There's this recent conference that was held at the Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey, and it was a conference that specifically celebrated maintainers, the engineers who maintain the Erie Canal, the engineers who maintain the internet, Mary Poppins, or quote, other individuals whose work keeps ordinary existence going rather than introducing novel things. Um, Jessica, if maintenance is so important, why do you think it gets less attention than innovation? Well, you said it yourself, I think, very eloquently, Michael. Innovation is dazzling. Maintenance is boring. It's it's banal. You know, to do it well is to hum along in a kind of no-nonsense way, and that's a hard thing for people to get behind. What was really fascinating for me about the original paper, at which became this conference in New Jersey, was to look at, at, in sort of an aerial view at the ethics behind what it is we actually are innovating. And so that the maintenance becomes less the product of a banal set of conditions and more a question philosophically for what it is we want to live with and what kind of society is backing that innovation and how does it over time have value for its constituents. Even acknowledging maintenance or extending sort of an existing system as opposed to working from a blank slate is really um, Difficult to do. It actually takes humility. It's something I've had to force myself to do at times. Um, if you get an assignment, say, to do a uh, wayfinding system in a complicated environment like New York City, uh, and you start studying what's out there already, what you find is that many people have approached this problem neighborhood by neighborhood, area by area, borough by borough sometimes, and each person comes into it with almost the starting point that nothing that exists already is valid and that they will, with the work they begin, sort of set the new standard that somehow everyone else will follow. And they do that work. It gets implemented up to a point. Then someone new gets hired, and they come in with exactly the same attitude. Um, To the degree you're doing large-scale projects that actually affect public life, this sort of drive towards uh, novelty sort of like cheapens a little bit, innovation glamorizes a little bit. But just this assumption that uh, nothing less than invention is required at every turn, that a blank slate is the only slate worth drawing on, ends up, I think, really doing us a disservice as designers and, and the people we serve, a little bit of a disservice. Several years ago, I was involved in a team that was charged with doing extensive renovation work on a large 
performing arts complex that I will not name. And uh, they had hired a, uh, a very good planning firm to come in, and the planning firm had worked out a long list and a complex interlocking proposal that involved rerouting traffic and doing all sorts of remedial work to stop leaks, to replace windows, to just do all this stuff that it would take to really make this complicated um, urban setting just work better. The client in this case was then charged with raising money to pay for all this work, and they just found it was the hardest thing in the world. People simply don't feel inspired to kind of like cough up a few million dollars just to replace some windows. And, you know, most dishearteningly, they put that aside, go out and bring in a very well-known name architect who came in with a really striking and very visible proposal to erect a series of uh, architectural innovations in space that only as a, as a byproduct would actually address the real problems this place had and really was solving a problem. How can we design something that will be a vivid lure for donors who want to pay for something exciting and visible rather than something that's um, less exciting but actually really necessary and needed? Part of the bad rap that design has is something we've inflicted on ourselves to a certain degree where uh, if we sort of mount it as it's about, it's about glittering novelty rather than just the hard work of figuring out, you know, what makes something better and whatever that thing is, is what deserves the attention. The authors of this original paper, they talk about this kind of enduring narrative, you know, rags to riches stories, you know, the princess gets the prince. It's about winning and losing, and it's about these sets of binary opposites that you either have all or nothing, and in fact, life is not like that. Life is messy. Life has friction. Life has complexity. You know, this uncertainty of maintenance, that you don't know how hard it's going to be, the ambiguity of the enduring role maintainers have to play isn't as sexy a story as the princess getting the prince. But what they ultimately come to is this idea of the sort of morality or ethics around which these stories live. And this is what I thought was a very provocative understanding of this notion of is it innovative or is it not, which is to look at the bigger picture and think about how we're raising our children, how we're teaching our students, how we're grooming our clients, how we're making work that actually speaks to the more honest and authentic kind of maintenance, which is to say, you know, doing the real work. I, can I actually, I'm going to quote this in this, the last paragraph of their paper. He, he talks about the stories that young people need to tell and need to hear in order to themselves take over in this next phase of t the technological revolution, which of course is ongoing now for 200 years. And he points out to the fact that um, young people get all tied up in knots because their parents and their elders have told them they must get STEM degrees, that they must be innovators, they must be game changers, thought leaders, entrepreneurs. And I think that they are absolutely spot on right to reclaim the history and the future of maintenance as something that speaks to and must embody a larger sense of human value and self-worth and that communities and societies need to understand that. Uh, that understanding, of course, comes from individuals. Yeah, and I can't be the only one who's, uh, when faced with that binary, thinks uh, that this is sort of a fundamental aspect of human nature, I think. And the two things have to live in some kind of balance, right? I mean, uh, uh, this isn't a political chat fest, but uh, if you're voting in, a, in the Democratic primaries, in effect, the primary voters are given a choice between uh, Bernie Sanders, who represents full-throated cry for 
idealistic, revolutionary change. And uh, Hillary Clinton, who is the classic detail-oriented, process-oriented incrementalist, almost everyone would concede that you need both of those things to succeed as a society. Obviously, idealism has to be tempered with the practicality of how you actually implement that idealism and vice versa. So you're saying that he's the innovator and she's the maintainer in this narrative. So here's a question for you, Michael. Is that a gendered thing? Good Lord, permit me to check my male privilege and uh, decline to comment too vociferously on it. Um, what do you think? It's easy to characterize it as that. And I realize that in, in even suggesting it, I'm single-handedly throwing women's liberation back several millennia. But, you know, if you, if you look at it just in terms of design considerations, you know, when you redesign something, if you design something new, you still have to figure out how this thing is going to keep going. You know, not to, not to double down on this dangerous world of gendering the conversation, but it's not hard to think of design, some design couples that we know of. I mean, Charles and Ray Eames or my mentors, Massimo and Leila Vignette. And, you know, I'll just speak about Massimo and Layla. They, they absolutely played those roles and were quite upfront about it. You know, Massimo would say, in terms of the design work that we do here, I'm the engine and Layla's the brakes, you know, and Massimo would come up with the big ideas and Layla would figure out, could this be paid for? Did this respond to the client brief? Was it practical? Could it be done on time? And you know, Massimo completely ceded sort of practicality to Layla and, in theory, liberated him just to... Uh, uh, think all the daring thoughts. Now, famously, that whole engine versus brakes thing was, you know, I think it was actually kind of a, uh, a little bit of a fake dichotomy because for years I used to think, you know, who wouldn't want to be the engine? But then um, I did remember what my uh, driving teacher told us, which is that you don't die in a car because the engine doesn't start, you die because the brakes fail. When I sort of remembered that, uh, you know, particularly the older I got, the more I came to appreciate and finally uh, idolize the role that Leila Vignelli played in that partnership. I just want to put one more uh, thing out there while we're talking about this conference. The authors of this original essay use as an example Mary Poppins. Now, why Mary Poppins? You know, it's a story written in 1934 of these kids who kept driving nannies away. Nanny comes, she's got this endless bag, they have all these adventures, they meet the chimney sweep, and on and on. The groundwork here is that in each moment of the story, the lesson that is taught to the children has some resounding benefit because it is ethically resetting the coordinates of their journey. So the tuppence that Michael gets from the bank, he wants to give to the birds his father wants it to invest in. You know, the child makes a scene at the bank and everybody thinks the bank is in trouble and suddenly there's a run on their money. And so they do this reading of this classic tale and it is just fascinating. Their argument is that rather than understand innovation as the enemy of maintenance or worse, maintenance as the sort of underbelly of innovation that no one ever talks about, they have this very rational proposal to make, which is that if we can in fact embrace the larger ethical scope of our actions, we might be able to, each of us individually and ultimately collectively as a society, understand how innovation and maintenance work hand in hand. That it isn't a set of binary opposites, but that at the core, at the nexus of those two acts, lies one's own individual capacity for choice and reason and moral behavior. And now a word from our sponsor.
This episode of the Observatory is sponsored by the Porto Design Summer School, where for two weeks each July, students come from all over the world to study editorial design and typography in one of Europe's oldest and most beautiful cities. From recent graduates to mid-career practitioners, this uniquely international course, now in its fourth year, has to date welcomed students from more than 15 countries. Now's your chance to apply for this year's course. For more information on how to apply, follow the ad on Design Observer's homepage or visit portosummerschool.idiomatic.pt. Yeah, um, uh, Jessica, you've been posting pictures of what awaits the students in this program. Uh, and Porto, which I've had the privilege of visiting just once, is really a beautiful city that in July is just going to be a splendid place to be. It is Europe's best kept secret. This city has everything. It is on the water, so there's a kind of Malibu quality to this coastal, beautiful place. But here is the thing that I do want to mention. It is unbelievably affordable. You can go out for a really good two-course lunch with a nice glass of wine and a coffee for about $5. You have amazing teachers too, right? Uh, yes. So Andrew Howard, loyal listeners may remember I did an episode of the Observatory last summer with Andrew as my co-host when you were, um, on, I think, on holiday, Michael. Uh, Andrew is an English graphic designer who has lived in Porto for 25 years. And he, assisted by me and Hamish Muir, another English designer, incredible typographer, uh, we always have a third person come. Uh, this year it will be Adrian Shaughnessy. Last year we had George Hardy. The first year we had Jonathan Barnbrook. And so uh, four tutors, uh, somewhere between, I would say, 12 and 20 students. They do come from all over the world, making it, I think, quite unusual in the sense that to be able to study in such a beautiful, affordable, magnificent place and meet people from all over the world is really, really fantastic. And uh, we hope to see many of you there. So, so, and Michael, I don't know if you saw recently in the New York Times uh, a map that was published uh, by a writer called Parag Khanna. It was, the essay was called A New Map for America. And he's proposing in the map and in the essay that accompanies the map to replace the 50 U.S. states with seven regions and to organize our understanding of our country around different tasks and different kinds of capabilities. Uh, uh, and he uses as an example other countries that are already starting to achieve this restructuring or sort of reevaluation of their infrastructure around the relative geographic and commerce-based strengths. It's, a, it's a quite a visual compelling argument. He talks about how it's being done in, in Italy around 14 metropolitan cities. Uh, he talks about how it's being done in China. And that he, he makes the point that connectivity is not just an infrastructure story, it's about strategy. He states, for example, I thought this was a very um, good example, he says that, that to see America as a sort of division between red states and blue states isn't actually realistic, but that it's actually a function of an understanding about America's connected hubs and disconnected backwaters. How much of that is a sort of design problem? You know, a map on one hand is a piece of information design. It's, uh, you know, it's meant to actually be describing the geographic relations that uh, all these things on the face of the earth have to each other. But also it's, um, you know, it's, all, it's a byproduct of a lot of arbitrary choices that actually make us frame the way we think of places in a very specific way. Just the very fact that this red states versus blue states kind of idea has arisen in the last dozen years or so shows that people are actually thinking of the United States in a different way, and they have throughout its whole history. I think 
think being purposeful about it and sort of saying, look, you know, as opposed to just doing it coloring book style, but actually looking at how the infrastructure that is um, defining how these areas relate to each other economically and operationally is perhaps more meaningful in terms of creating political entities that could actually just simply be more effective and be more effective to administer, be more effective to think through. You know, it's funny because it's sort of like it's a maintenance-based argument that actually is proposing something that's, you know, to some people terrifyingly uh, innovative, let's say, or at least novel. To Hunger Games fans, it will obviously look a lot like the way that the uh, post-apocalyptic United States has been recast in the era of the Hunger Games to have these different sort of like numbered districts. As a bit of provocation, I think it's really, really intriguing. And it's a reminder that mapping is something that just combines, you know, a faithful uh, record of what reality is with a organizing structure that is a series of choices, negotiated choices that people have made about what's on what side of what border. The thing about these restructuring of regions is that it strikes me as being more bottom-up than top-down. In other words, if the big boss president, you know, legislature says you must reorganize into regions and you, New Jersey, you know, site of Johnson & Johnson will become the pill belt and you, Detroit, will become the rest belt. Like, that's one thing. But I think given the nature of telecommunications and the nature of the way we organizationally self-identify in terms of our peer groups and in terms of our capabilities, that there's a real opportunity to have the maintenance part of life become a little more exciting because you can self-identify around strengths. And so it's really, it's a kind of glasses half full way of seeing the map. Mapping ends up being, um, particularly when it starts crossing into the world of technology, it just ends up always being this uh, variable, kind of hard to pin down thing that uh, every time you try to get specific about it, there may be some uh, unforeseen consequences. There was a story that I saw, and maybe you saw it too, Jessica, about some helpless uh, family in this, you know, what I like to think of as this kind of very nondescript little farmhouse in the middle of nowhere in the prairie, uh, suddenly kind of getting repeated visits from authorities because some kind of uh, mischief was being detected there. If a computer's IP address is like United States of America, they still have to like locate it somewhere. And the default location is basically the geographic center of the country, which is this house. You know, sometimes they're able to track something right to someone's computer uh, in this kind of like scary world we live in now, but sometimes it's just somewhere in the United States. And instead of it showing up as we don't know where it is, it's somewhere in the United States, the address it's given is like this house. So, you know, there's a lot of variations on that where, you know, if you just happen to be the geographic center of New Jersey, or if you just happen to have, you know, it's like one thing after another, it sort of just shows that uh, the entities that are actually designating the geographic locations of IP addresses are, that, that, that it sounds to me like that's just a blank they simply have to fill in procedurally, but by going to the default answer, it renders this really specific response that is, you know, the ultimate in unforeseen consequences of mapping, in effect.
the, the world of information technology, it's a series of interlocking innovations, and some of them kind of lead to these outcomes that no one would have thought of, and then suddenly um, people are at your door with a batter and ram to seize computers that you don't have that will convict you of crimes you didn't commit. So I don't know why the story reminded me of that episode in The Office when the Steve Carell character is following his GPS and he drives right into the lake <laughs> because it tells him to go right, and he goes right, right <laughs> into the lake, and he makes you realize that Technology uh, only gets you so far. Now, who are you going to believe, me or your uh, or this computer? And yeah, GPS. Yeah, the GPS must be right. I think this idea of believing in technology as the be-all, end-all, driving into the lake problem, being a good example of when it fails, uh, leads you to wonder where are the sort of limits of technology in terms of human aspiration. There was a team of researchers recently created what they call the next Rembrandt by developing a computer algorithm that looked at real Rembrandts. And with machine learning, they came up with a new one. Now, there is a four and a half minute film that interviews a number of people and looks at how they extrapolated data from a series of Rembrandt paintings to sort of create a composite understanding of his skill. You could say, that we use technology and data, like Rembrandt used his paints and his brushes to create something new. In order to get the brush stroke uh, somewhat expressed in a way that felt Rembrandt-like, they looked at the topography, the actual height on the canvas and the way he put down paint in layers. They did studies of a series of portraits. They looked at the eyes of Rembrandt. They looked at the lace collars. They looked at the direction in which the light was coming. They looked at facial features. And they created this composite that they're extremely proud of and that I think is just the most horrifying thing I've ever seen. Have you seen this, Michael? It's convincing, but it's kind of has a little bit of that um, uncanny sort of weird synthetic. I mean, like maybe it's just because you know how it was done. It looks synthetic. I'm not sure if I saw it and I sort of just saw a reproduction of it, I would say. I don't have a good enough eye to tell that it's fake. No, because there's I, 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 the, the counter-argument is this great uh, Penn & Teller film called Tim's Vermeer, which you can see a, a, a clip of on YouTube. That guy got it right. It took five years. He asked a lot of questions. He taught himself how to do certain brushstrokes. There's a kind of humility in the way that whole project is portrayed that I understood. And I think the reason the Tim's Vermeer story seems to get it, whereas the combined set of engineering geniuses replicating the brushstroke of Rembrandt did not, uh, might have to do with design by committee. It might be a function of the fact that there were too many cooks in the kitchen. It might be a function of the fact that it seemed to me from the way that clip portrays the project that it was very much uh, leaning towards engineering and the mechanics of the replicated image as opposed to the soul of this painter. And to me, the proof was in the pudding in the sense that when you look at that final Rembrandt, which they proudly show at the end, uh, it looks like he's got uh, a, a coffee filter around his neck. It does not look like a lace collar. There's something very flat about it. There's something very photoshoppy about it. And it really makes you wonder about the importance of the human hand, the importance of the human soul. To come back to that question about maintenance and innovation, Rembrandt's innovation was maintained over a career in which he, over time, got better and better and was really committed to understanding how to show how light falls on fabric. I think there's so many things you can do with a computer, so can't we just stop? 
you know, you could make the same argument about, um, you know, DNA analysis in terms of um, determining guilt or innocence in a case. You know, there's been millennia of human existence where people just kind of judging, is that person telling the truth? Is that person lying? You know, the whole, you know, the whole criminal justice system is designed to, uh, to answer those questions. And then with the introduction of DNA analysis, you actually can get answers to those questions that aren't based on people's shifty eyes or demeanors on the stand, the convincing testimony of presumably reliable eyewitnesses, but you just simply can tie someone directly to a crime scene with the analysis of a bunch of bits of uh, DNA, right? So I think there's, there, there is something about technology which you can argue provides, maybe it's only a backwards-looking assessment of things, and maybe that's really the flaw here. And I think you nailed it. Rembrandt is dead. There aren't any new Rembrandts. In theory, you can take every Rembrandt ever made and kind of work out some algorithm or series of algorithms that can kind of average out everything, but it does average it out, and Rembrandt wasn't... He wasn't average. ...in his lifetime seeking to... There was nothing average, average about it. Exactly. That's yeah. actually it. That's actually yeah. it. And I think... Look, I, I'm very interested in how technology and painting work together. The series of paintings that I'm about to publish in my new book very much made use of microscopes and, and digital enlargements and projecting onto canvas and printing onto canvas. And I, I think it's really, it's not wrong to want to inject technology and algorithmic research into the mix. It's the idea that you are trying to repeat something that already happened. You're not improving upon it. You're not adjusting it to turn it into something else. Whereas, you know, there's another project that we should probably mention, which was an algorithmic study of Mondrian, uh, an algorithmic way of looking at the still painting, which is a set of pixels. It lends itself to a kind of deconstruction and reconstruction by understanding color and line and the XY axis. That makes sense to me. Like that analytically is something that, it, you know, it actually looks like a motherboard, some of those paintings. You would even get an argument from some people uh, that photographs, they're just, they don't replicate exactly what's there. They describe a specific moment in time and they can be, depending on the angle and the crop and the exposure and the way it's lit and everything else can portray um, one event in multiple ways. So True. I think it's, it's, always one, it's always one step away. But it did redefine what we thought of as painting because we could do that. And so that brings us back to this question of innovation. Is it innovative to use the capacities of all of these computers and algorithms and engineers merely to recreate something that was created by someone who died over 400 years ago? Uh, what does that, where does that get us? Now, maybe it gets us someplace interesting. Maybe it gets us someplace that we wouldn't get without having done this exercise in terms of the next thing that we have to make. And, and 3D printing is amazing. I mean, the most impressive part of that story to me was the topographic study, that they didn't just look at the image, but they looked at paint as a material and that the materiality has almost a kind of a, a three-dimensional quality that's important. The brushstroke, very important uh, in terms of repeating something that happened so many years ago. Well, I, I mean, I think that knowledge is good, and the more knowledge we can have about even the physical character of a Rembrandt painting and understanding it, just as you can look at it as a connoisseur or as an amateur standing in front of one in a museum and you take it in one way, um, you know, if you look at it as a scientist with a particular interest in color or as someone who is, you know, able to analyze the canvas in terms of the chemical makeup of the, uh, of the paint that's been placed upon it, you kind of learn different things about it. I think the idea that somehow, you know, if you could fully understand it, you could then be Rembrandt is 
<laughs> that's what Frankenstein is about. Can you synthesize kind of human behavior just with complete information? And I think, you know, I mean, you can, you can make a, a, a computer can win, can beat a human being at Jeopardy or at chess or at Go. Um, and I think partly it's because, um, you know, those games have, no matter how seemingly infinite the number of outcomes they can have, they are still limited by the rules of those particular games. And I think you're talking about the difference between data and art, I think. And this is where we, this comes straight back to our original conversation about innovation versus maintenance, because to innovate is to have an original idea and to be an artist is to have an original idea. And the data that supports that idea is your own DNA, your own life experience, your own skill, your own capabilities, and the promise of your work to share with others. But it has to do with a certain kind of authorship and voice. And that's where technology, I think, can support that, but it cannot lead. It can't lead. That's giving up our human prerogative. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com. And if you go there, you'll find links to the things we discussed today, including maintenance, innovation, and Mary Poppins, and how those things are all surprisingly interconnected. Between episodes, you can keep up with Design Observer on Facebook and on Twitter. You can subscribe to The Observatory on iTunes, SoundCloud, or however you take your podcasts. Go to designobserver.com slash the observatory. That's designobserver.com slash the observatory. And if you're not listening already, please tune into our other podcast, Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Thanks to the Porto Design Summer School for sponsoring this episode of the Observatory. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Talk to you soon, Michael. Thanks, Jessica. Talk to you soon.